Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 to 11. Let's give our attentive hearing to the reading of God's word. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be heard by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us into this place to sing your praise, to confess our sins before you, to receive your words of pardon and encouragement, and now to, now to hear from your, your scriptures. God, I pray that you would give us hearts that are like good soil, so that the seeds that fall upon it will bear fruit, and that you would also remove the, the rocks, the thorns that often uh, choke what does bear fruit, what does uh, sprout from the ground, the worries of this life. Uh, Lord, turn our eyes to, to you and fix our eyes on things that you want us to, to fix our eyes on. And, and let your spirit be the helper who helps us in this, we pray in your son's name. Amen. So we're continuing in our uh, series in the book of Revelation, and now we're hitting the, the second letter to the church, uh, the church in Smyrna. And the, the first thing to note about this letter uh, to the church in Smyrna is uh, that it's very different from the letter written to the church in Ephesus, which we looked at last week. For example, uh, whereas the church in Ephesus was a very uh, uh, capable, well-to-do uh, kind of church, uh, the church in Smyrna was very weak, uh, very poor, um, unlike the, the, the rest of Smyrna. Uh, uh, the, the city of Smyrna was a, was a thriving Roman city, but the Christians in Smyrna were um, the lowest class. Whereas the church in Ephesus was rebuked for lacking in their love for one another, that's, that's what we looked at last week, um, the church in Smyrna was not rebuked for anything. Uh, they only received praise and encouragement to, to, to stay the course. Um, whereas the church in Ephesus was promised the tree of life if they repent, if they, if they change um, their ways. The church in Smyrna was promised the crown of life if they stay the course and finish the race. They will receive the, the, the crown of life that's given to people who finish an actual race and receive this wreath during this time uh, as the crown of victory. Uh, most of all, the, 
when the struggle in Ephesus, the, the Christians in Ephesus was more relational, right? Loving, loving people who are difficult to love, which is essential to uh, the Christian faith. The struggle here was more physical and material and financial. Not as in, you know, they're, they're physically sick with disease and, and, and they're, they're not able to work, uh, uh, keep a good job. It's, it's not that. It's, it's that these things were being taken from them forcefully because of their faith. And the, the question that we will have to ask kind of throughout this, as we study this letter is, um, if you were to lose everything, everything, uh, what will you say in that moment about God? What will be the content of your faith when everything is taken from you? That, that's kind of the question that we should keep in mind as we, as we read and study this letter to the church in Smyrna. Um, one of the reasons why there's such a difference between the, the letter to Ephesus and the letter to, to the Christians in Smyrna is because the, the contexts were also very different. And uh, we'll spend some time looking at the fuller context of the, the church in Smyrna so that we can understand this content better. It's like any, any part of the Bible, but especially the book of Revelation, to get a proper understanding of the content, we have to understand the context. So we're going to spend some time looking at the context, the the historical context of the church in Smyrna. We'll look at its, its history. We'll look at the, the true identity of the church in Smyrna and focus on how, how they were able to identify themselves, and that's why that's important. And finally, um, the legacy that the church in Smyrna left behind. Okay, so these would be the three points. History, identity, legacy. Okay. So, Point number one, uh, the history of the Smyrnian church. Take a look at verse 9. If you look at verse 9, there, there are quite a few things there that point us to the historical context there already. Uh, it says, I know your tribulation, and that is to say you're, you're suffering under persecution. That's what the word tribulation implies. And your poverty. Okay. Those two words give us a lot of context, and we have to unpack that. What kind and... What kind of tribulation and why were they suffering from this? And the word that begins to unpack this for us is the word that follows, slander, which means false accusation. And it's not just of any kind, but pertaining to more religious matters in this context, like blasphemy. Um, and in the context of first century Judaism, this kind of slander would have been tried in court and so there is also political and legal um, connotation to the word slander as well. So it's natural for slander to find the same sentence as tribulation and even poverty. Because the implications were, if you were found guilty of whatever you're accused of, the, the ramifications were holistic, total. Who are those who are slandering the Christians in Smyrna? It tells us. Uh, it says, those who say that they are... Jews, and yet not really Jews, because they are, right, strong language here, a synagogue of Satan. Now, it's important we note that this is Jesus who's speaking. So we know this is not only factual, 
But this is not some emotionally charged racial insult against the Jewish community. For one, Jesus himself was a Jew. The apostle writing this letter, the apostle John, was a Jew. Many of the Christians who are receiving this letter in Smyrna are Jews. So this is not some statement packed with anti-Semitism or anti-Jewish sentiments. This is a narrow statement about those who are slandering and falsely accusing Christians. What was going on? Uh, What we know from history is that the church in Smyrna was suffering from tremendous persecution coming from the Jews and the Romans together. And the reason is because the Jews had begun to expel Christians from their synagogues and began to turn them over to Roman authorities. Uh, Until the, the latter part of the first century, history shows that Christianity actually enjoyed a certain degree of protection under, um, under the umbrella of Judaism. So you see that in, in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, how even the apostles themselves were able to enter the synagogue and teach and preach uh, without problem at first. Uh, there was a brief period of coexistence of a sort between Jews and Jewish Christians. And naturally so because um, the the Christians were themselves ethnically Jew and they kept the law and and they behaved like Jews. And and the Jews didn't really find a a clear distinction at first between themselves and the the Jews who followed Christ. Uh, There are those uh, people today who try to make a clear, draw a clear line between Jews and Christians or the church, but that's a mistake because the first Christians were Jews. Uh, The first church were entirely composed of Jews. Gentiles came in later and got grafted into the the church. And so there was this coexistence, and yet over time, over time, um, they became more distinct as, as their doctrines became more distinct as well. Now, Judaism was an acceptable form of religion under Rome. And, and that meant that um, they were not forced to worship Caesar as a god. They were, they were free to worship Yahweh. But uh, they were required to offer sacrifices to Caesar as a ruler. As a ruler. And they did have all kinds of uh, temple buildings that were raised to, to, in honor of Caesar where people would offer these sacrifices. And Smyrna was famous. The city of Smyrna was famous for having one of those temples raised for Caesar. Over time, um, as Christians were increasingly unable to worship along with the Jews in the synagogue, and they were being expelled, they, they fell under Roman persecution. And, and we see this process right throughout the book of Acts, especially chapters 13 to 17, and in Paul's letters, more and more Jews and Jewish Christians become distinct. Um, and, and therefore, although Judaism remains recognized by Rome as a religion, Christianity is not. And if you get outed as a Christian, a Jew who's actually a Christian but not a, a Jew, uh, you would become a target of Roman persecution. Now, what does that mean? Uh, It means 
everything. You lose your property. It means you lose all your money. It means you get thrown in jail. And it means often if you don't denounce your faith in Jesus Christ and, and stop calling him Lord, because Caesar is Lord, uh, you get executed. And what seems to be happening in Smyrna is that the, the Jews are regularly outing uh, Christians and turning them over to Roman authorities, reporting them as non-members of the synagogue. How would they go about doing that? Uh, it's, it's presumably the same way the Pharisees expelled Jesus and his disciples from the synagogue. By accusing them of being lawbreakers, being blasphemers, those who do not believe in the, the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and for Christians, the, the additional charges, they, they worship a criminal who was crucified on the cross, tried and found guilty under Roman law and crucified. They're worshiping him. And that could be a threat to the Roman Empire. And this, again, hurt them, hurt the Christians um, physically, hurt them materially, financially, in every way. But it also would have hurt them socially, emotionally, and existentially because they're being turned over by their own people, their own countrymen. And being a Jew still during this time meant being the people of God. That, that Old Testament sentiment of the Jews being the chosen people of God still carried over into the new. And to hear their own brothers and sisters say, you have no place among the people of God, that would have hurt them deeply and even caused them perhaps to doubt their own faith, doubt their own spiritual standing. And if you recall our series in the book of Hebrews, which we covered for most of last year, uh, the New Testament letter written to the Jews, that was addressed to the Jews who were struggling in the church, who were struggling with this very same pressure, and were going back to temple worship, and many of them, if you look at Hebrews 6, were turning away from Christ entirely. So it's in the midst of all these persecution, uh, extreme poverty, that this letter comes to the church in Smyrna. And so we, have, we can gauge, in a sense, the, the eagerness right, with which they would have received this letter and opened it up. And, and what they hear Jesus say first is that he knows. Right? I know. I know your tribulation and your poverty. He says something encouraging here. And also something about their identity before he tells them things are actually about to get worse. He says, it is not those who are slandering you who are truly Jews, but you. They are not a gathering of God's people. They're not a synagogue of God. They are a synagogue of Satan. Again, when Jesus himself was a Jew, the Apostle John was a Jew. They were writing to many Jewish Christians. This is not a broad statement about Jews. This is a narrow statement about those who slander the church, falsely accuse the church. Um, and when you think about why, uh, the comments, some commentators have connected the dots and made the inference that the Jews, even though they were, they were exempt from calling Caesar their God and worshiping him as a deity, they were not exempt from serving him as Lord, and functionally, as they offer sacrifices to Caesar, right, they're functionally participating in the Roman cult. Um, Christians would have had an issue with that. They would not have easily gone, gone along with that. 
But what did the Jew Jewish community get in return? Physical safety, economic stability, social standing, a measure of religious freedom to, to worship in their synagogue. Right? This is like in any every other mafia movie you watch, right? Uh, there's always the collector, right, who goes to the the mom and pop shop, right, the grocery store, the the cafe, the flower shop, whatever, and they, they collect the monthly giving, right? And that means you're under protection, right? As long as you pay up, we won't mess with you. You'll be safe to do your business here. That's almost like what the Romans were doing. The theologian G.K. Beale, he comments on this historical context saying, the imperial cult of Rome permeated virtually every aspect of, city, of the city and often even village life in Asia Minor so that individuals could, could aspire to economic prosperity and greater social standing only by participating to some degree in the Roman cult. So it's likely that the Jews who are reporting and turning over Christians to the Roman officials found Christians to be a hindrance to this. Christians who are saying, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is the only true Lord. Uh, I, have a, I have this conscientious objection against make, making sacrifices to Caesar. Even though I don't have to call him a god, it's as if I am, I am tithing to him. It's as if I'm participating in this idol worship. I don't want to participate in that. And that threatens the stability of the Jewish community. And hence, right, and this makes sense of the utter destabilized lifestyle and the poverty-stricken lifestyle of the Christians in Smyrna. John uses the word putoheia, poverty, and not the word for merely being poor or lacking in things, which would mean they don't have the, the superfluous things in life. The word for poverty means they had nothing. They had nothing. It's not because they were lazy and refusing to work because it was all taken from them by the authorities. The Christians in Smyrna lived in extreme poverty as a result of refusing to bow to the Roman cult. And not only did they not give Caesar their lip service, they didn't give, them, give him their material possessions. And therefore, they were deprived, economically deprived, socially deprived, religiously deprived in every way. This theme comes up, again, in Romans chapter 13, in a passage that's often taken out of context today, um, the passage about the mark of the beast. It talks about the symbol of the beast in Revelation 13, and the beast there attacks uh, the saints and makes the submission to himself and his mark, receiving of the mark of the beast as the condition for enjoying prosperity in his evil empire. Okay. The Christians in Smyrna were basically saying no thanks to the beast. No thanks to the mark of the beast. They didn't negotiate with the beast. You know, as long as you don't have to call you God and just offer you things, are we cool? They did not do that. They believed in God's eyes when people functionally serve the beast and carry the mark of the beast, they have no rightful place in the synagogue, in the house of worship. And if people were to 
receive this mark of the beast, compromise with the beast, and then worship in God's synagogue, that would turn the synagogue into the synagogue of Satan. That's the historical context and the, the biblical context behind the phrase synagogue of Satan so that you know this is not just some uh, racially charged insult that Jesus is hurling against his own people. There's a context to this. Now, even if you didn't know any of this history, the context of Smyrna, based on Scripture alone, in the context of Scripture alone, you would have to, you would have to come to the same conclusion. The Bible says Satan is a false accuser. And what were the Jewish community in Smyrna doing? Falsely accusing the church. In Romans 2, 28, 29, it says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, ethnically, genealogically, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. The Bible has always separated those who are God's people only on the surface, outwardly or, or ethnically, but, and, and, and separating them between those who are truly God's people inwardly by the Spirit. We know uh, from Jesus' own words that simply because you're found and welcomed into the synagogue and the house of worship does not make you people of God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. He intentionally uses synagogue as one of the places where hypocrites regularly go worship and pray. So just because you gather in the synagogue and pray does not make you a people of God. Mark 13, 9, Jesus says, Be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you stand before governors and kings for my sake. He identifies synagogue as a place of persecution. And Jesus himself experienced this persecution as recorded in Luke chapter 4. When they heard Jesus' teachings, all, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up, drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill so that they could throw him down the cliff out of the synagogue, the house of worship, came a mob filled with murderous anger wanting to throw Jesus down the cliff. Does gathering in the synagogue or in the house of worship therefore somehow say something about the quality of your faith? No, it does not. Let's not be deceived. Did Jesus himself value uh, worshiping in the synagogue and himself teach in the synagogue? Yes. Did his disciples and apostles do the same? Yes. But does being inside a synagogue make you automatically a people of God? No. Could a people who, who functionally love the world more, worship the things of this world more, enter a synagogue, the house of worship, and pay lip service to God? Absolutely yes. And would that fall under this very scary category of a synagogue of Satan? Yes, as well. And the million dollar question is, everything that I just said about the synagogue and the house of worship, is that applicable to us, the church? And the answer again is yes. 
when Christians give lip service to God, but functionally worship, meaning truly trust in, rely on, find their joy and their hope and their peace in the world and things in the world, they turn their gathering into a synagogue of Satan. I don't like that, (laughs) but that's what it says. That's what the text says. When, how about when Christians slander each other? When Christians falsely accuse one another or harbor bitter hatred, anger, unforgiveness toward one another, when Christians are living in unrepentant sin, unchanging sin, and to just come back to church once a week to feel better. When Christians compromise with the world constantly, so that they would have economic stability, a successful career. When their tre- all their treasure is in that, in that basket called convenient life. Are we not carrying the mark of the beast and entering the house of God? This is a hard, this is a hard saying. I don't like this passage. This is a hard passage to take. But it's not new, is it? Not for those of us who grew up hearing the scriptures. Scripture was always clear about the difference between the sheep and the goats. They're found in the same church, in the same synagogue, but they're sheep and they're goats. Those who are God's people outwardly, those who are God's people inwardly. Those who give God just Nothing but words, but those who truly give God their hearts. So we have to ask the question, uh, what am I? Am I? Am I set apart from the world? Am I, am I a people of God? What is my true inward identity? When I look at not just what I say about God, but how I function in life, what do I see? What does my material, financial way of life say about who I really serve? What I really prioritize? Whose glory I'm really after? If I were to lose it all today, what will I say about who God is and what will I say about who I am? And this leads us to the second point, and, and, and that's the point about identity. And I'm, I'm hoping that as we look at how the, how the church in Smyrna was identified, it can guide us in how we ought to be identifying ourselves as well. First, uh, there's no doubt here at this point that the true people of God, the true Jews, the true Israelites of God, are not those marked as such by their ethnicity or skin color or genealogy, right? Then what is it based on? Here, it's clear it's based on whether you are marked by your willingness to suffer with and for Christ. That's what proves their their faithfulness here in Jesus Christ. 
the willingness to say, I'd rather have Jesus than all the comforts of Rome. I'd rather suffer with him than live peacefully without him. It's like the hymn that I grew up with. I don't know, maybe many of you grew up with this as well. I grew up with the Korean version of this hymn uh, called, I'd rather have Jesus. It goes, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. If you can say that from the bottom of your heart, you are a people of God. You are a born-again, spiritual people of God. It's not whether you are a member of a synagogue or a church. It's not about your upbringing and your tradition and your customs and your religious habits. Jesus says to Nicodemus, the best of them all, you must be born again if you are to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and Jesus is identifying the Christians here in Smyrna as the truly born-again people of God. True Israelites. Headed to the true eternal promised land of God. And this is also made apparent in, in, in the way that, in a subtle way, but a biblical way, the way that this passage has Isaiah's prophecy sprinkled all across the letter, the greeting and the final encouragement. Uh, the greeting in verse 8 says, the words of the first and the last. And that's word-for-word word quote from Isaiah, where God repeatedly identifies himself all throughout the book of Isaiah as the, the Lord, the first and the last. Isaiah 41 is an example of that. And you know what the encouragement God gives, the first and the last, gives to his people, Israel, in Isaiah 41? Verse 10 says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Fear not. That was the message coming to the people of God from the first and the last, from Yahweh. How does Jesus open up this letter to Smyrna? I am the first and the last. What is the encouragement? Verse 10, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Jesus is speaking to the church as God spoke to Israel. Jesus is identifying them as the true Israel of God. I'm the first and the last. Do not be afraid of what is to come. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. I will save you even from your death. I will save you. And notice here the promise is not, if you put your trust in me, you will not suffer. Verse 10 says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Not whether you will suffer, but suffering is certain. Do not fear what you will suffer. And he says the devil will throw some of you into prison. And, and they're again referring to human persecutors themselves as the devil, uh, working with him. And it says this is that you may be tested, and for 10 days. Okay. Uh, 10 days is the, the period of time that 
Daniel and his friends were, were tested when they were taken captive. Um, and given that there's a lot of allusion to Daniel in Revelation, this 10-day period is probably more of a symbolic number representing the, the entirety of their tribulation, the completion of their, their tribulation. And what does this testing mean? It means being examined and proven and identified as something and not something else. That's most oftentimes the use of test uh, in the scriptures. To prove, to, to, to identify God's people or any individual to be something and not something else. And in this case, it is so that they would be identified, proven to be true Israel. Prove that you're indeed people of God, which leads to this assurance that death will not be the last of you, but God will. The first and the last, he will be the last thing you see. You will see his face. The 10-day the period implies that there's an 11th day. And on the 11th day, you will see him. There is an end to our tribulation, to our suffering. See, whatever the, the book of Revelation was intended for, it, it can't be intended for Christians to find a way to escape suffering because then this would make no sense. It's not given to us so that we would find some way of finding economic success in this very economically volatile world. Oh, there must be some way to decode what's going to happen in the end time so that we would invest properly in the stock market during the end and, and we would have success. Or maybe it's a way for us to enjoy political stability in a very politically destabilized climate. Maybe that's what the book of Revelation is about. Well, you can say that if you rip this passage right out of the Bible. Only then can you have that interpretation. Here to a church suffering extreme poverty and political persecution, Jesus says it's about to get worse. But, verse 9, you are rich. He says that in parentheses, as if, as if it's not this, this imperative that he's trying to like wake them into, but as a, as a sort of an inside note that, that people who have a common understanding would make. You know this, don't you? You are rich. You still have everything you need. You know that, don't you? You'll be tested, you'll be proven to be my people, and after 10 days, on the 11th day, you will receive the crown of life. You're rich. You have everything you need. And the, the Christians in Smyrna were, were running towards this, this finish line, this, this end. Um, and that's why the, the, there's no rebuke. It, the, the charge is, the charge is to continue this race and finish this race. And as it says in verse 10, be faithful unto death. Cross the finish line. Be faithful unto death. This reminds me of my uh, high school PE teacher who happened also to be the, the track coach. And he would love to make us, um, I wanted to play basketball, but he would make us run these races during PE and team races. And 
there was this relay race, and um, it was like several miles, and I was running the last leg of that, and and I was I was just dead tired. I to this day I don't really enjoy just running on the, on the track, but uh, as I was heading towards my last lap, the coach was standing right there on the side, and and as I was coming around, and I was running second place. I was dead tired. I was ready to collapse. He looks at me with this like intense look in his eyes, and he points at the guy in front of me, and he says, John, get him. Yells at me at the top of his lungs. Get him. And that strangely motivated me <laughs> to go after him and to, to give him my all, even though I felt like collapsing and, and giving up at that moment. Be faithful unto death. Cross the finish line and finish strong. This is, this is Jesus cheering them on. Now, if this came from anyone else, uh, this kind of, hey, you're about to get martyred, but be faithful unto death. Uh, especially, like, let's say it came, this, this came from the, the Christians in Ephesus who are just living the life, right? Wealthy and successful. And they were to write a letter to the church in Smyrna saying, hey guys, I know you're suffering a lot, but hang in there, be faithful unto death. That would probably come across as harsh and insensitive, right? But this is coming from someone who actually went past death and received the crown of life, isn't it? This is coming from Jesus who, who lived in extreme poverty, who suffered persecution from his own people who was falsely accused and slandered and who was crucified and then rose again to glory. And so he identifies himself in the greeting also as the one who died and came to life in verse 8. As if he's saying, I'm the one who died and came to life, so let me encourage you as you follow the same path, as you head towards death so you can come to life again. The, uh, the theologian Michael Wilcock put it like this, the Christ who unveils this dismaying prospect of the church in Smyrna is one who has himself been through a Smyrna experience. It's one thing to hear this from someone who hasn't gone through it, but it's another thing to, to hear from someone who's gone through it all and came back. And to hear him say, I know, I know. And he says also, come follow me because it's going to be worth it. It's going to be glorious. What is a Christian? <laughs> what, what is a Christian really? If not somebody who just goes to church once a week on Sundays, we know that's not true. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who believes this Jesus is alive and he's worth following unto death. That's a Christian. is someone who identifies themselves as a believer in Jesus unto death. It's people who believe that Jesus' tomb is empty. He's alive. He's seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He defeated Satan. He's put him on a leash until the day of final judgment. Until then, he says, run this race and finish the race and be faithful unto death. Don't compromise with the beast. Don't seek temporary comfort in the here and now. 
receive the mark of Christ, finish the race. And so that enables us as, as believers to not simply look at our suffering, but to look beyond it to the one who, who, who's gone through it and passed through it. We look at him and we keep our focus on him. That's who we are. That's our identity. And that was the identity of the Christians in Smyrna. And when you have this kind of identity and the gathering of such people, it leaves a legacy. And that's the last point. What was the legacy of the, the church in Smyrna? You know, whenever I hear passages in the Bible that are so um, victorious and triumphant, like Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Wow. And, and I would wonder, did anybody actually live that way while they're suffering? Did they actually consider the suffering of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed? Because that seems really rare. And turns out, turns out there actually were and are people who live this way. The first recorded martyrdom after the time of the apostles is the martyrdom of Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp was an early church father. He was a theologian. He was a pastor. History records that he was arrested by the Romans and burned at the stake, but it was the Jews who brought charges against him and even provided the wood that would burn him. And they collected that wood, history records, on Sabbath day, on the day when they would refuse to do anything. But they collected wood to burn this guy. During his trial, as Polycarp was threatened with being burned at the stake, Polycarp is recorded to have said, while your fire will last but a little while, the fires of judgment for the ungodly cannot be quenched. Why do you delay? Come, do what you will. Soldiers then grabbed him to nail him to a stake, but Polycarp, and that's because people run away, Polycarp, he stopped them and said, Leave me as I am, for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me to also remain unmoved without the security you desire from nails. And then he began to pray, and the fire was lit, and his flesh was consumed. And the chronicler of this martyrdom says, It was not as burning flesh, but as bread baking or as gold and silver refined in furnace. And where was Polycarp martyred? In Smyrna. Smyrna. One generation after the first recipients of this letter came Polycarp. That's a legacy of the church. And do we see such a legacy today? Yeah, we do. Um, in North Korea. In China. In Afghanistan. We see the legacy of the church in Smyrna today. People who are running the same race, faithful to the end. Now, the point I'm making here, guys, is not that you should all pack your backs and go to North Korea and become martyrs. The point is to carry the same fire that they're carrying that might lead us to be martyrs. The same faith that they had that, that would lead us to leave a similar kind of legacy of self-denial, carrying our cross, 
in following Jesus. I'm not asking you to go to China and become a martyr. Let's imitate the faith that will cause us to die to ourselves in our own way here in Atlanta, Georgia in 2021. How are you denying yourself, carrying your cross, following Jesus unto death? How are you denying yourself, carrying your cross, representing Jesus in your relationship? How are you seeking his glory in your relationship, in your studies, in your workplace, and making your life all about Christ in you, making him known? I want to close with these words that the apostle wrote to the Jewish Christians in the letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider Jesus. Finish the race. And be faithful unto death. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, um, God, we confess this is a hard saying. These are hard truths. And it makes us think, I'm nowhere near these Christians in Smyrna. I'm nowhere near living out this legacy of the church in Smyrna. Lord, would you begin to do and continue to do the good work that you started in us and begin to mature us if we have been immature. Help us to live more blameless, holy lives if we have been living in repeating sin. If we have lived only for our own glory, our own stability in this temporary existence, Lord, may we begin to live for your eternal crown of life and seek to to make your glory known through our, our lives. If we have been marked by something else, some other priority, may we now be marked by Christ and him alone. And in Christ alone, may we find all that we need, all that we long for, all that we desire, all that we treasure. We pray this for our church, Lord, so that our church would truly be a gathering of your people, a gathering of your saints, gathering like the one in Smyrna. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.